Ringer Films and HBO's third installment of the Music Box series is listening to Kenny G. The film takes a humorous but incisive look at the saxophonist Kenny G, the best-selling instrumental artist of all time and quite possibly one of the most famous living musicians. Listening to Kenny G unravels the allure of the man who played jazz so smoothly that a whole new genre formed around him and questions fundamental assumptions about art and excellence in the process. You can find Listening to Kenny G on HBO or HBO Max on Thursday, December 2nd. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults, with 0 to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today after a several week absence is Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. Were you relieved to get to the gates of our studio today and find that we were not in fact locked out? Because I was definitely relieved when I got to the gates of our studio today. The figurative gates of our studio. I saw, yeah. who was it? Andrew McCutcheon tweeted out the clip of an NFL player actually getting locked out. Andrew McCutcheon is fairly engaged on social media, so he is one of many players uh, having fun this morning. Uh, Sean Doolittle's wife tweeted out a picture of Doolittle texting that he forgot his keys, and she said, imagine he got locked out twice in one day. <laughs> so we have not been locked out at all, and we can... Continue to talk on this podcast. Yeah, well, that uh, gives us one leg up on the Major League Baseball Players Association because as of 12.01 this morning, as we record on on uh, Thursday, what day of the week is it? Thursday. Uh, ownership has locked out the Major League Baseball Players Association. It was a unanimous vote. It is also the first work stoppage in Major League Baseball in 26 and a half years. Uh the phrase 26 years of labor peace is going to get thrown around a lot. So if you want to have a good time, drink every time you read the phrase 26 years of labor peace uh, while you're reading coverage of the of the lockout. Um, so uh, this is giving me flashbacks because you and me and Bobby are on a Zoom call talking about collective bargaining negotiations, which, uh, you know, we have some experience in. If you want to feel old, did you know that I was less than a year old the last time uh, an MLB work stoppage ended. Bobby, I imagine you weren't born at all at that point? No, I was not born. I'm not yet 26 years old, which Bauman likes to call me the fetus of the Ringer MLB show because of that fact. This is the first work stoppage of my young life. That's pretty incredible. Um, I thought you were going to say, if you want to feel old, I was less than one year old when we 
uh, first joined a union together, which is <laughs> what it feels like from, from uh, sometimes. Uh, so drawing on the history of work stoppages in sports and baseball and our own experience and, and some of the public reporting that's been out there, in addition to the article I wrote this morning uh, that is just up on the ringer.com about detailing what you need to know about this lockout. We're going to take you through seven pressing questions for uh, the major league baseball lockout, give you an, an impression of what's at stake, what, how long this might last, what the processes are. So you can be a more, conf- more informed consumer of news over the coming weeks and months. All right. So the first big question is what is a lockout? Yeah. And I actually think this is a, f- an important distinction to make between a lockout and a strike, both of which are kind of under the umbrella of a work stoppage, but are very different. A strike is when the workers, in this case, the players say, we are not going to work anymore. This is what happened in 1994. In the middle of the season, the players said, we are not going to work. That led to the cancellation of the World Series, the only year we haven't had a World Series since John McGraw and John Brush decided not to play in 1904. However, a lockout is when management decides to make the same move. Management, in this case, is saying, we are not going to let it get to the point that the players can strike. We are going to lock you out. And that is an important distinction right now because that is the owner's decision. They didn't have to lock out the players, even though the CBA expired on December 1st. They could have kept negotiating. They could have kept free agency and the trade market open. They decided not to. And that lockout freezes all activity around players on 40-man rosters or who were on MLB rosters last season. That means they can't be signed or traded. They can't communicate with team personnel, including medical staff and so on. Yeah. And that's like you said, I think that's an important distinction that I am relieved, I think, to see hasn't been elided that much in the discourse around this lockout. There's a a reflexive impulse, I think, particularly after the 94-95 strike to call every work stoppage a strike. But this is something that was unilaterally imposed by Major League Baseball. You know, Rob Manfred, in his his statement that was released denouncing the, the lockout, said this was something they were forced to do. And that's, you know, not literally true. Like they could have continued under the previous CBA. The National Labor, Labor Relations Act provides for uh, for continued operations without a work stoppage when a CBA expires. And they could have, you know, like Zach said, kept the doors open uh, for free agency and and theoretically even have, have continued to play games. It was just more tactically advantageous or strategically advantageous, I should say, for owners to to pull the um, to pull the plug right now, uh, rather than letting this get to a point where the players could shut down the the league at a more advantageous uh, point for them. Yeah, that's uh, the important difference here is the players theoretically could have struck, but it's not like the players striking in December is going to do anything. They're not getting paid at this point. It's not going to cost the owners any money because of missing games. So that's not really a pressure point the players could have used. They obviously did in 1994. And by locking out the players before they could strike, the owners are now preventing that, preventing the players from getting that leverage potentially later on. I will say there is uh, like some distinction in what 
teams can still do at this moment, even though the 40-man rosters are frozen. They can still sign players to minor league deals. They can make personnel moves. I, I know a couple teams are still lacking a manager, so they can still conduct interviews and, and hire people for the, those positions while a lockout is going on. But otherwise, there's not going to be any transaction activity going on until the CBA is resolved. This is the reason we saw the flurry of free agent activity over the weekend. You know, we're barely going to touch on Max Scherzer and Corey Seager and all, you know, all those uh, huge deals that got signed was this was teams and players trying to lock in contracts before the work stoppage, because just um, from a procedural standpoint, it's impossible to to work through a trade or a free agent signing like Nick Martinez had his uh, contract announced um or had a free agent contract announced the other night, but the Padres didn't get it through in time, so he's still technically a free agent. I believe the the Justin Verlander deal is not mm-hmm. official yet either. So this is still, you know, I'm not saying that Justin Verlander is going to go back on the open market once uh, once activity starts back up, but it's just as a matter of of uh, legal minutia, he is not yet under contract. And so you know, you'll see a couple cases like that. I guess the big thing is there's no contact between players and teams and team personnel. So like James and Tyon tweeted today about he's trying to rehab from an injury and he's not allowed to talk to the, the team medical staff or training staff, uh, which, you know, is there are, I think, practical reasons for that to be the case, but it puts it puts everybody in an awkward position. So let's go to question number two, Mike. How does collective bargaining work? Yeah. Um, so this this goes back to why why the lockout now, and that's because collective bargaining. I I think there's a misconception that there's like argumentation or negotiation or that rhetoric matters all that much. Like this is it's a it's a very formalized, very slow moving process. So you know there was frustration um, yesterday when the two sides met for like 20 minutes and then broke and then met for like seven minutes more and then broke and then decided they were done for the day. This, this isn't something, this is such a, a huge complex document that you can't just sit everybody down in a room and hammer it out. Uh, just going back and forth across the table. So, um, and that's, you need pressure points basically, because both sides have something that the other wants. They have goals they want to, uh, achieve, achieve in this negotiation. And it's not like, this is not like a contract negotiation where like Max Scherzer could say, okay, the Mets aren't going to give me the money I want. So I'm going to go sign with the Dodgers or the angels or somebody else. There's nowhere else to go. So there are a lot of complicated, subtle, intrinsic factors that, that cause the needle to move. And that happens very, very slowly. So, um, that's part of the reason why, like I said, the, the owners are locking the players out. Now, one way that the players could have exerted pressure is to get through most of the season, get paid for most of the season and then strike. And they've used that to great effect in the eighties and nineties. And the owners are just not going to let them do that now. Um, so what the way the actual bargaining process works is it's not like the entire union gets together, uh, and the entire ownership group gets together and they all meet. They, they both, they have, um, specific employees who are in charge of, of negotiating, uh, and then they appoint bargaining teams. This is the the Major League Baseball or the MLBPA uh, executive subcommittee. You've seen Andrew Miller and Max Scherzer. Those, those are two of the leaders on the executive subcommittee who have been heavily involved in negotiations. Uh, Dick Monfort is the owner of the Colorado Rockies, who's the chair of MLB's uh, labor committee, who's also – he's. 
been the counterpart. So those people all get in a room and they'll exchange proposals. They'll ask each other questions and then they'll have to go back and then, you know, see what, what the, the whole bargaining unit or the whole ownership uh, group thinks about, uh, about those proposals and, you know, see how to try to move the needle. And so it's, you know, it's a very deliberate process. Yeah, I think this is a misconception I had about how the process worked until I went through it myself. I thought it was kind of just the key parties in the room. And, you know, one of them would say, oh, the minimum salary should be $600,000. And then the other side would say the minimum salary should be $700,000. And they just kind of throw numbers back at each other until they settled in the middle. But that's not actually how it works, partially because not every not every issue that they're negotiating over is just a difference of money. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But also because these are large groups with differing interests among the owners, you know, you'll have the owner of the Yankees and the owner of the Pirates probably have different needs and different interests. The Pirates are probably more concerned with the salary floor and the Yankees are probably more concerned with the luxury tax threshold. Those are two very different policies. And if that's true of 30 owners, just imagine when you have 1,200 players across 30, 40-man rosters, that's just a large group of of young players, of older players, of middling veterans, of expensive veterans, et cetera, et cetera. So you need the executive subcommittee, which is uh, eight players. Mike mentioned Andrew Miller and Max Scherzer. Uh, the others are Francisco Lindor, Marcus Simeon, Zach Britton, James Paxton, Jason Castro, and Garrett Cole. And all of them are kind of the key the key figures who are voted by their peers as representation, but then they still need to go back to the the rest of the players, uh, to the the representatives from each team and the broader group of 40-man rosters and say, you know, this is what we're talking about. What are you most concerned about? And represent their interests best. And you accomplish that through slow back and forths where you're in a room for 20 minutes and you present a proposal, the other side asks questions about it, and then they deliberate among themselves. You don't want to necessarily give away too much of the table if, if let's say, the owners have an issue that they're willing to give in to the players on, then they might not want to reveal that at the table just yet because, as Mike said, this is all about exerting pressure at particular moments during the process. So they have to talk among themselves, and then just have the lead negotiators present it to the other side without all 30 owners or all 1,200 players or even all eight subcommittee members doing the talking at once. Yeah, and it's not restricted to those eight subcommittee members. I know, uh, I think in the last NBA lockout, they would bring in a rotating group of players to, to the negotiating table to uh, to try to you know get different perspectives, to try to you know, get the message of what it's like at the table back to the players. And so this is, you know, it's a constant process of consulting with your constituency, basically, and trying to amalgamate those issues to make sure that everybody gets taken care of. And because the the long, the short of this is that even if the executive subcommittee gets to an agreement, gets to um gets to a CBA that they like, they still have to have it voted up or down by the whole union. So if you don't get consensus, then you're going to have problems down the line. So, And we've actually a, seen that with some strikes in other industries just in the last month or so with uh, the IATSE strike, with uh, the John Deere strike. There have been instances in which the bargainers on the worker side negotiated a contract that the rest of the workforce didn't actually like and it led to tension down the line. So that's why this intermediate step is really important. So question number three, 
how did we get here? This has been coming for a while. We've seen the seeds of this really over the past 10 years, maybe longer. I mean, the way I put it in my article is baseball's free agency system, which has been around, you know, as you as long as I can remember, as long as you guys have been alive, as, as you were both very, uh, very happy to, to point out earlier in the show, um, it's built so that you pay your dues and then you get your big paycheck from the player's perspective. And what we found out in the, the empirical revolution is that players are most productive in their 20s and they get paid in their 30s. And so many teams have just stopped, you know, stopped following through with that second half of the bargain. And so we've seen free agency crater, you know, Buster only at ESPN wrote a, uh, an article just this morning about how the, the quote unquote middle class of free agents has really suffered over the past few years that basically guys like Seeger and Scherzer and Simeon, the superstars, they will always, always, always get paid because there's a limited number of guys who can, who can do what they do. But if you're, you know, one of 10 players who can, who can do a job, uh, the it's, it's become, um, more likely that the, uh, a team will issue a veteran and try to fill that hole with a cheaper, uh, cheaper rookie. And this has gone hand in hand with stuff like service time manipulation stuff like, and which teams then leverage into trying to get these long pre-arb extensions, like what we just saw Wander Franco sign, for instance, um, and so the long and the short of it is everything has come together to get players free agency pushed back to pass the point where it's where it makes economic sense for the teams to give them big contracts. And so we've seen a lot of money come out of, you know, come out of the player's side generally, but specifically uh, those long term contracts that you know give players and their families security for life. Uh, that's been. Uh, it's been eroded, uh, and that's led to a lot of bad, uh, bad blood between players and ownership. And like, this is another thing. Like, you can a lot of labor negotiations get testier than they have to be in a way that's really self defeating for for the company because of because the, the because management tries to win small battles that end up costing more in the long run. Like, and it's we just see this penny ante stuff. Like, um like service time manipulation, like little things that erode the trust between labor and capital. Um, the way that the league handled the return to play process last year, you know, it just the way that players talk about the union and their class consciousness now versus five or six years ago is night and day. And a lot of this is, you know, I think a lot of this could have been avoided if the league had just been like 5% less ruthless over the, the past few years. Now it's, you know, it, like, Broadly speaking, baseball players are not like a particularly socially conscious bunch, uh, but they've been radicalized by the the working conditions that they've had. So, um, you know, this is a, a fight that that has been coming for for a long time. I know it certainly doesn't come as any surprise to me that this is where we are. Yeah, I think as far back as like the day that last CBA in 2016 was signed, people were predicting, okay, the next one is going to lead to a real fight. And I think the reason for that, and I want to to make this point specifically because it relates to something you said, the 2016 CBA, the 2011 CBA before that, they didn't really address the economic structure of the game all that much. There were some changes to like the qualifying offer and uh, a capping of the international uh, amateur system. But for the most part, 
the financial structure of the game remain the same. And that means the economic issues that are fundamental to the disagreements between the two sides weren't resolved and basically kicking the can down the road. Now, now we've caught up to that problem. And if you look at baseball's labor history at all of the previous work stoppages, they've basically all been about money and specifically the three that have cost games. There was a strike in 1972 that lasted about two weeks and cost a few games. There was the strike in 1981 that led to about a third of the season being canceled and the split season. And then obviously the 1994 to 95 strike, all of those were specifically about economics. Players, you know, they want uh, working conditions that are, uh, that are better for them. Owners want particular things that are better for them, but ultimately they're not going to strike unless it's about bank accounts and paychecks. So that's what we've kind of punted from CBA to CBA until this time, where I think uh, the players partially emboldened by what happened with the pandemic and the negotiations over starting last season uh, have decided that now is the time to, to make their stand. And I'll say this too, like the point about it being 26 years since the last work stoppage in Major League Baseball, like I think it's tough to overstate like, I don't know, I was just a kid, but you know, I'm old enough to remember the strike and canceling the World Series. It's tough to overstate how traumatic an experience that was for this industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it made everybody gun shy. And I think to a certain extent, ownership was the first side to realize that uh, and take advantage of it and press their advantage in, in the first set of CBAs that Rob Manfred negotiated as deputy uh, deputy commissioner, but we're far enough past that, far enough past the 0405 NHL lockout that cost that entire season, almost threatened the existence of that league, that I, th- I think there's an appetite for a fight now that wouldn't have that wouldn't have been there if some of those bloodier labor fights were were in more recent memory. So I think enough time has passed and the the table is reset uh, to the point where the union is I mean, the union is definitely more more up for it than they have been in previous CBA negotiations. Yeah, and I think uh, the just difference in tenure between players and owners matters a lot. That for a lot of players, I mean, no player from 94, 95 is still around, of course, but the for players a lot are of, all your age. Yeah, it's, yeah, but, but for a lot of them also having a five-year CBA, if you got screwed in 2016 this might be your last chance, you know, for for a lot of the players on the executive subcommittee, for instance, they might not be around for the next CBA. So if they want to make a, a difference in the system for the players who follow them, this kind of is their last chance because it's not going to still be around in 2026. If you're Max Scherzer, who's 37 years old, are you still going to be negotiating in five years? Probably not. So I think when you see the rhetoric from some of the players about really wanting to fix the system for the people following them they know what it was like to go through the system that's been in place for two decades and now have the opportunity to do something about it yeah and scherzer in particular i've i really like the way that that he's talked about this is something that he's fixing for people you know coming in behind him because he's got more money than he can ever spend first of all but this is it this is not for him this is about righting the wrongs that are going to be done to, that are being done to younger generations and will be done to generations beyond that. And I think that gives me a lot of hope because you look at the executive subcommittee and it's a lot of superstar names. And we saw that in the NBA's uh um the the NBA's labor negotiations where you've got, you know, guys like LeBron James and Chris Paul running the union and they're carving out basically sweetheart deals for themselves and their friends. Uh and I would hope that there will be less of that 
uh, this time around, particularly because so much of the problems that, you know, insofar as the, the players um, could have done anything differently. I think there has been a tendency for older, older players to, to throw younger players under the bus. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Um, but I, it, I, I'm at least optimistic that that's not going to happen this time around. We'll see what actually happens. Yeah. And uh, just to build off that point, I've seen some people say, you know, Max Scherzer just signed the biggest average annual value deal in MLB history. He broke the record set by Garrett Cole. They're both on the subcommittee. So is Marcus Semien, who just signed a huge deal. So is Francisco, Francisco Lindor, Lindor yeah. who just signed a huge deal. But I, these players were were voted on by their peers as representation. And I think as long as they understand they have the responsibility to to uphold the demands of all 1200 of the the players and their constituency that's what's important here it's not you know is scherzer himself benefiting from the current system it's what about the other 1100 players who don't have the luxury of signing 20 million dollar a year contracts and of course the member of the executive subcommittee we haven't mentioned who i'm sure you're glad to see on on this list <laughs> James Paxton, you know, James Paxton, yeah. he's been rehabbing. Maybe he's just had a lot of time to work on his arguments. Sorry about that. It's been 25 minutes since we've had a joke on this show and I'm not comfortable being this serious. All right. So let's go to question number four. What are the issues? So we already talked. I, I think the main issue is economic, but then there are other issues that kind of branch off of that. For instance, the league wants expanded playoffs. We saw that last year when there was a 16-team postseason. We've seen proposals that the league wants a 14-team playoff field with uh, a bye in each league, and maybe like teams get to choose their first-round opponent. Whatever the details might be, the league wants more teams to make the playoffs. And I think there is a, a stated reason for this and maybe a hidden reason to this as well. The stated reason is that more playoffs mean more money. And the way baseball players get paid most of that money would go toward toward the the teams not the players because it would just mean a bigger tv deal more playoff games more playoff revenue at the gate etc the hidden reason perhaps is that if there are more teams that make the playoffs you don't need to win 90 games to make the playoffs you can win 84 games to make the playoffs and that means maybe you don't need to spend as much money to get like at that good fifth starter and just punt 30 games a year because you have a bad fifth starter or you're just going to to call up minor league guys or something. So I think the players view this as a concession. Uh, they've countered, uh, according to reporting, with maybe a 12-team playoff field, but I think the league would need to give up a decent amount to get the playoff structure they want because this would lead to so much economic benefit for the the owners do you want to talk about some of the other issues? Well, I, would, I was just going to chime in on that. That as far as expanded playoffs go, while that's valuable to the players, I think I think you're right when you make the point about how that might affect free agent spending. Um, I could see it going both ways, frankly, because if there's four extra playoff spots, there's less incentive to tank, and maybe there'll be less tolerance for teams to just you know sit around the bottom and pick up revenue sharing checks. Maybe it would be an incentive for you know middle of the road teams or 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 worst teams to to try to be more competitive. So I could, I don't know. I think there's a, a credible argument that it could go both ways. But the most important thing is this is something that the MOBPA knows the league wants and they know that the league needs their permission to get it. And that makes it incredibly valuable. Even if it's something that they're ambivalent about, it, it can be horse traded for for something, you know, reforms to the competitive balance tax, to reforms to free agency. It's like this is the one thing they've got now that they can't go on strike that 
can get them a win. So I think like that is a a hammer. The way I read it is the most important moving piece in these CBA negotiations is what the league needs to give the players in order to get expanded playoffs. Yeah, and there are definitely levels here. Like the players uh, we have seen want a universal DH, uh, a, a DH to join the National League. That is not as big an issue as expanded playoffs. I can't imagine the players would say, okay, we'll give you 14 team playoffs if you give us the universal DH. It will take a lot more than that. And th- the more than that could include a change to the arbitration system. The players want ARB to start after two years instead of three, which is actually the way it used to work up until the 1980s during one of these uh, negotiations. They want players to be able to reach free agency earlier or potentially an age-based system. We have seen MLB propose, okay, everyone becomes a free agent at age 29 and a half. The players don't like that because that means players like Carlos Correa or Corey Seager or, or Juan Soto, who debut really early in our superstars, would be tied to their teams for 10 years before reaching free agency. So the players have responded with a version of, okay, it'll be six years like it has been in the past or age 30, something like that. So there's an either or system. And I think that's one of the reasons we have also seen a lockout as opposed to this getting ironed out by the deadline. It's because... If you just have two sides haggling over something with a number, over the minimum salary, like I mentioned before, even over like the age, if, if both sides agreed to a solely age-based system, you could say, all right, the owners want 29, the players want 26, 28, 27, and then, and then meet somewhere in the middle. But if they're arguing over structural issues, you can't really meet in the middle that way if one side says it should be only age-based and the other side says it should be age or service time-based. There's not really a middle ground there the same way there is if they're agreeing to the same principle. Right. And that's where, you know, sometimes you need an extrinsic uh, uh, motivator to, you know, that's to to shake an issue like that loose, sort of find something that uh, that you can horse trade for, for something that, you know, something that you want for something that the other side wants. So, you know, and like I said before, this is going to take a lot of time, not even to, to make those kind of deals, but to sort out priorities and try to, uh, you know, try to come up with, with how the puzzle pieces fit. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. We want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like... 
Can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. So the next question is, who's each side advocating for? And that this is something I think is important because there's... Uh, uh, again, I think a misunderstanding of what the purpose of of the labor union is, um, and I, I think it frankly speaks to a real. It's not a blind spot so much as uh, a gap in terms of the stakeholders, in terms of like people who have a vested in- interest in Major League Baseball. You know, when there's negotiations between the union and the league, the union doesn't negotiate on behalf of the fans or even of non-unionized players, you know, amateurs, minor leaguers, and and that sort of thing. Their legal duty is to bargain only for the members of, of, uh, of the bargaining unit, the, the 1200 odd guys on, on 40 man rosters and, uh, you know, players who were in, in the majors last year. And that's, you know, it, I think that's the source of a lot of, you know, when you see, the draft change or international free agent spending uh, change. Like there are only tangential ways in which that's um, in, in which that's connected to the issues for the, the major league baseball players union. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes when it comes down to people within the union or, or without, you know, they'll, they'll defend their own as is the, the legal obligation of, of the players association. And on the other side, we have the league, which is, represented the the faces rob manfred the commissioner and i think people generally have the sense of the commissioner as like doing what's best for baseball but it is in times of labor negotiation that you see the commissioner's actual job which is to represent the owners and that is a, a very important distinction when the two sides are arguing rob manfred has put out a letter that very clearly cast himself on the side of the owners against the players as an oppositional force rob manfred basically has this job for this moment. He joined the league office for negotiations. He uh, started working alongside Major League Baseball in the 80s uh, during collective bargaining. He served as outside counsel for the league during the 1994-95 strike. He was one of the lead negotiators in, in later CBA negotiations. So this is why the owners decided to make him commissioner when Bud Selig retired because he has historically been very good at winning negotiations. He's the best. I mean, I wrote this years ago and I think about it a lot. Like he's the best who's ever done it. Maybe on either side in any sport. Like it's, he is the, the Marvin Miller might have something to say about that. He might. I don't know. Like Miller had a lot more to gain and a lot less to lose. Like, but I think this is, Manfred is is in that category of great labor negotiators in sports for good or ill up there with with guys like Marvin Miller. Um, and so like this is his wheelhouse that all the all the times, that, you know, he's shown himself to be sort of lacking as as a, you know, like a statesman like figure or, or as a public speaker, like the owners are OK with all that because he's a killer in the at the bargaining table. And so, you know, he's not going to be as hands-on in as commissioner. I mean, obviously he was commissioner in, in 2016 as well. Um, but deputy commissioner, Dan Hallam's going to be the, 
the guy's running point against Bruce Meyer for the MLBPA, uh, who's an experienced negotiator who's worked with other um, with players unions and other leagues. So this is, uh, you know, I'd say both sides are, are bringing their A game. Like they're both very, very well prepared. No, and there's no. This is something actually that that I'm glad about with the Bud Selig era is there's no illusion about who's on what side and the fact that this is an adversarial process. But Rob Manfred as commissioner of baseball being the front man for the owners, I think that again drives home the point that, you know, is it bad for the game that, uh, you know, if salaries are up and revenues are up that MLB.TV costs, twice as much as it needs to that beers cost 15 bucks at the ballpark that you know that uh that all those costs get passed on to to the fan like there's nobody to advocate for the fan and i think that's important in um uh to remember when you think about some whether something like the 14 team playoff is going to be good for the sport i would argue no like no matter who it's good for it's not going to be good for the sport but that doesn't enter into it because there's no nobody at this bargaining table look out for the interest of the the sport as such. That's just you know that's just not how things work. Sorry, that was a really good point, but I've just spent the last couple of minutes realizing that our conversation about Manfred means he would fit in the Godfather. He's a wartime consigliere. He's not the guy you want necessarily making rules changes in 2018. But if you're an owner, this is why you hired him. There we go. Um, now I'm trying to think about. What that means, should he be patronizing toll booths on the New Jersey Turnpike uh, in the <laughs> intermediate future? Just keep your head on a swivel, man. Um, all right. So let's move on to question number six. Where is public opinion on this? And does it matter? This is sort of, you know, this is the the realm that we inhabit because we're obviously not in the room. We're just observing from from the outside. And, uh, you know, let's go to the consent manufacturing factory. So. I think one important factor about this lockout is that it's the first in the social media era, the first in the the full internet era, really. And that changes the dynamic a bit in how the two sides can present their cases to the fans. You were saying how the fans don't have representation in the room, but I think both sides still want to appeal to the patrons of the game. And you've seen that Rob Manfred had a very lengthy letter that was obviously very slanted toward the owner's side. Uh, that was published basically at 12.01 last night. And you've seen various MLB Players Association responses since then, from statements and letters to uh, Tony Clark's response to the changing of a lot of players' profile pictures on social media because their likenesses have been removed from MLB.com. And they're, I think, basically trying to say, without us, you have no sport, you have no business. Uh, so... I do think that the Players Association, partially because of what they experienced a year ago, are more unified and ready for this public relations fight than they, they have a, been. A dress in, rehearsal for this, yeah. Mm-hmm, than they have been in any of the previous circumstances. But to a large extent, I think the does it matter question is more important here because in the room, Bruce Meyer and, and Dan Hallam are just advocating for their clients. They're not advocating for their clients because of how the fans feel about them. I kind of think we like to talk about this because, as you said, this is our realm. This is what we can see because we're not in the negotiating room, but we can see how fans respond to polls or react on social media. But at the same time, like I, I kind of think that's overrated when it comes to the actual deal that's going to be hammered out. 
Yeah, owners are so insulated from the impact of public opinion that, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's not like this is the kind of thing that's, you know, going to get Jerry Reinsdorf yelled at in a restaurant or something like that. So public opinion, I I think, is is only as useful as um, it's only useful insofar as it can be used to exert pressure. Uh, And there's a limit to that. You know, there's a limit to the amount of shame that capital can feel. Uh, So. And there's also the problem for Major League Baseball, like this is sort of the succession thing of like, you know, you want to make the people in charge look bad without ruining the company because then you'll have nothing to take over. Like this is so it's it's a a fine balance. I think that the MLBPA is better equipped to fight this battle. It's been tough for them traditionally because a lot of fans have a natural resentment, one, just ideologically toward organized labor, you know, living in. Uh, you know, a, a very laissez-faire capitalist society and, you know, all that Max Faber bullshit. Uh, but it's, but, you know, resentment towards people who get paid millions of dollars to play a, a kid's game. And it gets elided that the overwhelming majority of, of players don't get paid million, millions of dollars. Or, you know, they're, they're not, or at least they're not making Max Scherzer or Corey Seager money. Um, and that, you know, this is a, a very real struggle for their own financial security long term. Um, and I think that they're doing a better job of, you know, I, I think the, the ground has been softened, particularly last year, sort of exposing the um, the naked greed of owners and um, you know, practicing messaging. And also, you know, the the debate about minor league pay and stuff like that, you know, showing that the, the rhetoric, that the received wisdom isn't always accurate. And so how much that matters, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it it can't hurt. I don't, but I don't know if there's a, a point at which like tweets are going to solve this. I, I just don't know if you know. I I think the owners, at a certain extent, are just so rich and so well protected that that they might be impervious to public pressure. This isn't a novel observation, but one other difference between the average fan's perception of the players and owners is that they have a perception of the players. The average fan knows who Max Scherzer is. How many? Casual baseball fans know who Montfort is. Probably a very small percentage. Maybe even a small percentage of Rockies fans. Overwhelming. No, this is. Well, I I agree with your point generally. I think I think that's a bad example because of how active he's been and and how um, directionless that that franchise has been. I think when the when the owners actively screwing up, everybody knows who he is. I actually I actually. Very much disagree. I would wager that like Steinbrenner is maybe the only, I mean, George Steinbrenner, I should say, is maybe the only MLB owner where if you made a poll of fans and said like, can you name the owners of each team without given options, that more than 50% of fans would have known his name. Steve Cohen's going to be really upset to hear you say that. I'm sorry, maybe Steve Cohen in a year, but I, I just think like being online changes your... I don't want to say Twitter is not real life, but like in this case, Twitter is not real life. Nobody knows who Dick Monfort is. I'm sorry. We should we should conduct a poll to see because yeah. I bet it's, a, Rockies it's fans, an exceedingly right small percentage. Anyhow. Do you know who Dick Monfort is? <laughs> but we're not Anyhow. even... Like, we can't even conduct that poll here because people who that's listen true. to a baseball podcast that's doing an episode about the lockout are definitely going to know more than right. the average fan too. Like, we're trying to find the... We're trying to find the fan who just goes to the ballpark, right? Here's Bobby, Bobby we're sending you to Denver with a, a sandwich board <laughs> yeah, and, that says, shoe, high little, five me if you know who Dick Monfort yeah, is. Yeah, a little shoe leather reporting, a little yeah. pound in the pavement. Love that. Here's my challenge to MLB show listeners. Grab a, a pen, 
Try and write down as many MLB owners as you can think of. I bet you will not get to 10. I think that would be really difficult for the average fan. Maybe I'm not giving our, our, our listeners enough credit, but I imagine, as Bobby says, our listeners are not the average MLB fan. And that all gets to the point that it's just easier to blame the people you watch and already scream at when they have a bad start you know, 10 times a year than the owners that you never think about. So that's one point. I think the other point to, like, does this matter? For as much as, like, the players are working in concert with each other and for as much as the, like, Players Association has more of a concerted strategy around fan engagement at this point, I think, it's not like that's their negotiating strategy. They're still approaching this, like, as a labor negotiation and not a PR effort. And I think that's smart, given what we're talking about, about pressure probably not mattering as much as we think. The only real tangible way in which fan reaction could affect this is by you know, not buying as many tickets or as much merchandise next year, which is what we saw happen post 94, 95. And that, as Mike said, set the sport back for a while and made the sides gun shy about another work stoppage. So I think also made Bud Selig really happy to look the other way about (laughs) steroids. So yes. So I tell you what, if we lose the season, but we bring back the 70 Homer seasons, I might make that trade. If we're making a deal, if that's a deal to be made. Everything is the 90s again, right? TV shows are going back to the early 90s now. Maybe baseball can too. But uh, that's to say that like, especially being in December right now where fans aren't buying as many things anyway, maybe they'll purchase fewer season ticket packages or something, but I kind of doubt it'll matter as much until the threat of actually losing games arises. And that's the seventh and most important question is, will we miss any games? I didn't even plan that transition. Look at me. That was really good. Yeah. I, I'm, I've forgiven you for condescending to our listeners just now because you set that up so well. Um, the short version is I'm not worried about it yet. Like we're three months from I, in, in my mind from having to worry about this. Like Feb- February is where you're getting the point where can you finish out free agency? Can you finish out the off season and then do a full training camp and then get to opening day, March 31st? We saw last year that you don't really need that much time. Um, you know, you could probably compress that schedule by a week or two. Um, I think in 95, what did they settle in early April and they were on the field by May 1st? So you know, I think it, I, I, I'm not going to worry about missing games until mid February. I'm not going to really worry about missing games until, unless it's March and, and we're not close. And I think absent that kind of pressure, it's going to, it's going to be hard for either side to move. So my expectation is this goes until it starts to threaten the season. You you kind of need a deadline to come to an agreement. And while there was the December 1st deadline, again, the sides aren't really losing anything tangible at this point. If you look at past work stoppages in the sport, and we'll probably get into this in more detail in a future pod, but the 1973 lockout led to the delay of spring training, but no missed games. The 1976 lockout led to the delay of spring training, no missed games. The 1980 strike was during spring training. Some of the spring training was canceled, but there were no regular season games missed. The 1990 lockout, the season started late, but all those games were made up. It just pushed a week later into the fall. So there is a lot more precedent for some of spring training getting messed with and the regular season not being affected than actual regular season games being missed. And maybe there are more fundamental disagreements here than there were in like 1973 or 1976. So 
there's definitely more room that the sides need to go to come to an agreement, but there's a lot of precedent for things lingering throughout the winter. And then when the sides realize they're going to start losing money, that's when they're more likely to make concessions. And and I do think like if you had asked me two years ago, I would have probably said that I could see games being missed because of all the reasons we talked about. But given that the sides both lost a lot of money during the 2020 pandemic season with the, the shorter schedule and everything and no fans in the stands, I think I would be more surprised now just because they lost a lot of money two years ago and probably don't want to lose more uh, so soon after that. And I don't want to make too much of this, but I'll just point out that from the proposals that have leaked so far, those aren't missed the season kind of things from either side as much as Rob Manfred's gone out here saying this is the most extreme thing that, you know I've ever seen like it would be one thing if if the league was coming in with we're going to lock you out for the season unless you agree to a hard salary cap or the which is what happened coming- in that was what they disagreed on in 94 that was a huge fundamental change to the sport if it yeah had gone and through. that's like not only 94 but the NHL lockout that's what that was about and or if the the union was coming in with, we want to abolish the draft and have universal free agency from amateur level and you know no restrictions and stuff like that. You know, this is I've read a quote from Colin McHugh, basically saying like, we know we're not getting the whole thing back right away. So as long as the the two sides are where they are, I think there's a a road to a deal. With that said, there are mechanisms like you know. Ownership is is very patient. Like that's that's their advantage in every negotiation, not just within baseball, but within other sports and and you know in the manufacturing world, in the media world. Like they've got more money and they've got more time, and that's the the overpowering advantage that that management has uh, in labor negotiations. Um, and the other thing is the unions prepared for you know for a long winter. They've still got sources of income. They've, you know, the unions uh, put together uh, a lockout fund. They've been telling players to save. Um, they've, a lot of players still have money from signing bonuses coming in, which the league still has to pay, even if they don't have to pay salaries. They still have merchandising money. So it's not like the faucet is completely off. There, if either side wants to really dig their heels in, this could get ugly. But I, I don't know. I just have a hard time seeing the issues at hand as you know as heated as the rhetoric has been been like a, a threat in the entire season type of confrontation and may, you know maybe i'm reading this wrong but uh you know i, I think at most we we miss a few games where the season gets pushed back but you know i, I think everything will be back to normal ish by by late spring then again at the same time i didn't think any big free agents would sign before it's true. the lockout, so I don't trust either. us for predictions. We also both predicted Atlanta <laughs> to lose every playoff round, so maybe we no, should no, say that one of us got yeah. one of them right, didn't we? Or did is it we? one of the wild card? Did we get one of the wild card games right? Between? Oh, I, I predicted the Dodgers over the Giants, but I predicted Atlanta to lose every single round. Okay, so maybe the fact that I'm saying I, I think there will be an agreement around mid February means we'll next see baseball in 2026. Yeah, um, in which case, you know, tune in to Zach and me on the Ringer, I don't know what, the Ringer three-body problem show? I mean, sign me up, Bobby. Bobby just told us he bought the book, so he's got a lot of time without baseball to read. Yeah, all right. Um, so 
with the flurry of, of transactions before the uh, before the lockout started, there's one that got in just under the wire. Jackie Bradley Jr. is headed right is headed back to Boston along with two prospects for Hunter Renfro. The way the way uh, that I know that this lockout is serious news is that Bauman didn't start the show with this. That he didn't even bother <laughs> with making a joke in the intro about how the biggest news in baseball is Jackie Bradley Jr. headed back to Boston. I, I just kind of wanted to clear out for you to just wax rhapsodic about his return. He didn't hit well in Milwaukee last year. That's so. that's an understatement. I believe he was the worst regular hitter in the entire major leagues last season. Here's hoping he gets back to familiar confines and finds the bat again. Um, but, you know, he was a great player. And yeah, Bobby, great. Great. I said it. He was a great player there for a long time. So uh, be happy to, to see him back in familiar territory, even if it, it's a little harder to root for the Red Sox than the, the Brewers. Wow, that's more muted than I thought. I, you know, the way you reacted when I'm I stole him in the 2011. I'm taking the somber tone appropriate for this cataclysmic, you know, labor event. This is, I mean, this is also the, like, that's probably the most serious 45-minute stretch I've ever had on a podcast. So, you know, it's hard to ramp right back up to, you know, chuckles and hugs territory from uh, from predicting the decline of baseball. So, uh Anyway, we'll be back next week. We'll have more labor coverage. We'll react to news as that comes. We'll find some special episodes to to keep us entertained, uh, keep you, well, we hope keep you entertained. I guess that is the point, right? We're not doing this just for our own amusement. Uh, to keep you entertained throughout the long off season that we hope does not go any longer than you would have expected. Until then. Yeah, so that will do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Uh, thanks, as always, to Zach for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Jackie Bradley Jr., Adam Smith, and Max Scherzer for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the lockout, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit Honda.com slash Prologue to learn more.